0: faithful listeners. Um, you're, of course, listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And uh, we've got some interesting items for you to um, listen to. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. peruse. There's, there's yeah. a big, like, word. It's, yeah. a, it's at me yeah. three.
1: The other thing you should know, listeners, is I screwed, I screwed up the recording. So so, the, so this is a do-over, but I promise we'll get it right this time. And, and we're starting out with
0: Yes, we're a month late. Uh, this usually um, lose the booze in January, but um, we're going to do it anyhow. We've already interviewed uh, Hilary Schoenbaum um, about her book, Dry Challenge, and you can do it in February as well as in January. Sure you can. We <laughs> need some
1: principles or whatever.
0: Hilary Scheinbaum, uh, you you really are right on trend here um, with your book, The Dry Challenge, subtitled How to Lose the Booze for Dry January, Sober October, and Any Other Alcohol-Free Month. Uh, First off, I would like to uh, welcome you and say that the the design of this book is is really fine i really enjoyed seeing it it's beautifully produced thank
2: you and thank you so much for having me on today i really appreciate it
0: well it's certainly timely i mean everybody's just about um tired out from, from all the the, um, the celebrating although this year <laughs> i'm wondering is there like a, a conflict between the, the premise of the book um, about tossing and losing booze for for January after all the partying and the fact that we really didn't get celebrating in with the coronavirus.
2: Right. You're totally right about that. But I, I have noticed, though, that many people have been drinking more than ever during the coronavirus pandemic. And so instead of just having a very boozy December, as people usually would, I think that ultimately there has been many months of drinking more than capacity and so people are really looking forward to January 1st as a time to start cutting back and ultimately eliminating for the month um, their beer, wine, and spirits
0: so they can get back to a more comfortable place with their drinking. Yeah, I mean, you you actually, (laughs) statistics hold up the fact that, I mean, people's liquor spending is way up. Yes, absolutely. You
2: know, I think in terms of alcohol consumption, as a country, we often drink when we celebrate, but certainly when there are times of devastation, people often turn to alcohol as well um, for Mm -hmm. comfort or for whatever reason, uh, boredom perhaps too. So, you know, during this really crazy coronavirus pandemic, certainly people have been drinking a lot more because there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of, you know, negative emotion, and there's less to do, you know, to distract people from what's going on. So there are less opportunities to get out of the house, and uh, alcohol has been one of those activities that people have definitely been participating in more and more.
1: The I mean, interesting thing is, if you if you live in Pennsylvania as we do, the pandemic was a disaster from the start.
0: Because, <laughs> it's because the liquor state, control state. state. The
1: state controls the wholesale and retail of, of liquor across across the state, and uh, they closed all their stores. But they said we'll, we'll allow you to order by by phone. The difficulty mm-hmm. is they've forgotten the fact. That each liquor store across the state, of which there are hundreds, only have one telephone line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, 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 if you wanted a day of frustration, you could try to call the liquor control board and listen to listen to music on hold
0: for eight hours. Right. <laughs> no, That's no, so you wild. know the the thing that amazes me um, if you read up on on the, ancient history I mean, people have been finding ways of of creating booze since the dawn of history just about i mean mm-hmm. they're, they're, isn't that kind of curious
2: it is you know i i also i think too you know people are very inventive and certainly as time has gone on um i agree with you historically yes people have been since maybe perhaps since the beginning of time I think more recently it's been interesting, though, to see all of these companies that are coming out with non-alcoholic options that are non-alcoholic wines and non-alcoholic beers and spirits and cocktails that don't have booze. Um, And I think that category is going to continue to grow as certainly, you know, the alcohol category, there's many, many brands every year that, you know, pop up too. But very interesting to see not yeah there's always category. a dichotomy yeah. i
0: mean there's there's sort of not one way anymore i mean there's on one hand uh, the trend of you poor out, coming out of europe is um there's less booze and there's a trend in this country for um low-alcohol-everything or no-alcohol-everything, and at the same time that the, that is raging um, about with the liquor sales. And the same is true with you cite a lot of health benefits from not drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. At the same time that they publish um, longevity, you should always have a glass of red wine in your hand. <laughs> Yeah,
2: you know, I can't comment on the latter, but I will say that when you eliminate alcohol from your diet, it automatically, you know, within a a period of a month, you'll see clearer skin, you'll you'll have better sleep, you'll likely, you know, be sleeping deeper and also through the night. As well as you'll be saving money because you won't be spending it on alcohol. Yep, yeah. <laughs> um, and certainly there are other digestive perks as well. So,
0: yeah, I mean, you know you got me when you yeah. talked about the bio, the bio genome or whatever it is in our gut that mm-hmm. in which every time that I, mean, I have to, it has to be one of my favorite things is this whole thing with the gut biome. You know, know all it does, now they say it controls the functioning of your mind. We should should tell you, Alison, that
1: Anne is corrupted, totally corrupted by the concept of gut bacteria.
0: Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And Hillary writes about what alcohol does to it. Not good, huh?
2: Not good. It's not great. You know, for me, I will say on a personal level, when I did my first dry January, one of the biggest epiphanies that I had, and maybe, you know, it's, it's my gut biome, as you would say, for me, it was sleep. That is my major, you know, um, thing that I appreciate so much now. Because before I had done a dry January, I was averaging maybe five hours of sleep every night. And I thought that was just how my body naturally recovered. I thought it it was due to my crazy work schedule, that I was super stressed, so, you know, my my body would just sleep five hours. And, you know, within a week or two, let's say the 10-day mark of having given up alcohol, I was sleeping seven to eight hours a night. And now why is that?
0: What's the cause of that?
2: Because when you drink alcohol, while it might initially sedate you and cause you to be drowsy and sleepy, when you metabolize it, so once you fall asleep and your body starts metabolizing the alcohol, it actually causes awakenings and it disrupts your sleep. So you're going to get fragmented sleep. You're not going to be sleeping, you know, deeply, which is what our bodies really need and our brains need to recover and, and feel restful and energetic the next day. So Does that have to do that. with melatonin or what? You know, not entirely sure, but I do know that, alongside um, you know being disruptive, also it's a diuretic. So if you have to urinate during the middle of the night, that's obviously oh, right. cause you to get up. And so all of these things combined, you know as well as I do, and, and many people do, is when you get a you know a great night of sleep. You can be so productive during your day. You're so much more upbeat and happy, and you have energy. And when you drink, it really pushes all those things to the side. Um, so you
0: know, for not me, to that was, the loss of, of, of energy with hangovers.
2: <laughs> oh, totally. And I and I speak to this in the book as well. There is a survey that was conducted in the UK that uh, reported the average adult spends two years of their lives hungover. And when you think about that, you could finish grad school within two years. You could have, you know, you could write a book. You You could do so many things with that time instead of spending it feeling nauseated or dehydrated or stick to your stomach, you know, and I think that really puts things in perspective when you think about all of the things that you put off in your life or that you tell yourself that you don't have time for, um, which may be true due to a crazy schedule. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with alcohol, but if you consider the amount of time and your energy levels after a night of drinking or day drinking, um, it really puts things in perspective how you could... Potentially, be spending your time and spending your energy.
0: So, yeah, there's there's really a lot to unwrap there. Well, you know, your data that you have in the book is is striking. <laughs> um, what was the one that really threw me was about uh, how much money you'd save by not drinking. <laughs> Tell it's us some of that hard data.
2: Yeah. So you know there's so much in there but basically what i amounted to is i as i said you know if you're spending about $10 on a drink and you have you know two to three a night and you're and you're drinking two to three days each week um you could essentially be spending up to uh, upwards of 3000 to you know $45,000 a year
0: it's more it's than um, that it's
2: amazing absolutely amazing and over the course of 10 years, you could potentially be spending around $50,000 or more. Um, it really depends, obviously, on, you know, your local bar and what you like to drink and how often you're drinking. But the point is, is if you have $50,000, what would you do with it? Would you retire early? Would you spend it on the most amazing vacation? Would you, you know, put it, a down payment on a house? Like, what could you potentially do? with the extra cash that you are not using when you're imbibing. Now, it, you, 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 you started out with, with,
1: with January. Why, why yes. did you decide to go the whole hog in all 12 months?
2: Oh, well, I actually I, I haven't done all 12 months. You haven't done all, okay. Um, a, I have not. I, I have done four dry Januaries. Um, this year will be my fifth. And I've done a number of Sober Octobers and other dry months in between. Uh, I will say that during the coronavirus pandemic, I have consumed very few alcoholic beverages. Um, but ultimately, in the beginning, I didn't set out to really write a book about this or continue doing dry months after this one Uh, the first initial dry January. And that one started because I had made a bet with one of
0: my best friends. Oh, yes. I was going to ask you to tell that story. You got a a Mama Fu meal out of it.
2: (laughs) I did. I got a very fancy meal. Um, So the story starts in December 2016, about four years ago this week. And I went to sushi with a guy friend of mine. We hadn't seen each other in a while, so we were just catching up about friends and family and work and dating and all the things that good friends discuss. And because New Year's was coming up, we started talking about New Year's resolutions. And the topic of dry January entered the conversation. And at the time, I, was, I am a journalist, and I was primarily writing about food and beverage then, and I was also a red carpet reporter, so my nights very much involved going to red carpets, going to after parties, and then during the day I was writing about wine, beer, and spirits, and restaurants, of course, too.
0: Yes, I mean so, that was that's what I, my life was like. I mean reviewing restaurants and and doing that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. No, you, right. you actually you slightly misled my my observation. I, I was I wasn't talking about you. And 12 months I was talking about your book appears to say you should do this every month with a different label for each month as it goes by
2: oh like a different challenge yes I you know it's funny I have done um, a couple of their 30-day challenges in the past they've mostly been uh, physical challenges like for fitness. So I have done, you know, 30 straight days of, of workout, you know, in the city. It's a boot camp class. And, you know, I wrote about it for a website. Uh, I've done cycling for 30 days. I've done, you know, different exercises to see how it mm-hmm. changes my yeah. body, and my mind, and that sort of thing. Um, but I will say that within the past, you know, Five dry januaries and doing those um, other challenges in between that the dry challenge is the one that I've consistently done every year, the other challenges i I did once and and didn't repeat
0: see i mean my my question to you is basically, if you feel so much better without having any booze in your life, why would you ever start again? You know that's a very fair question. I will say that.
2: The average, well, I not say the average. The 72% of Dry January participants end up drinking less up to six months later. And for sure. me, while I didn't, you know, expect that I was going to gain as much as I did during that first initial Dry January, I was still, you know, writing and had a career that was very much centered on still food and beverage after my Dry Challenge. So... I was certainly drinking much less. Um, And, you know, year after year, I've drinking less and less and less and less. So at this point in my life, I could probably count the the amount of times that I've had a drink this year or the amount of drinks for that matter. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're right. I I will tell you that the last time that I was, you know, hung over was months and months and months ago. That's a horrible um, I started, feeling, isn't it? it? It's the worst. And so I agree with you. I think that, you know, the last time I personally had a drink, I had one glass of wine and I didn't even finish it. And that's not to say that I feel, you know, judgment towards people who drink. I totally understand it. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, though, I think having gone through this and really experienced you know, life without alcohol for an extended period of time that sometimes it just it makes more sense for me.
0: Well, you know, your book is full of tips on, on handle, handling the various um, temptations and challenges. And um, uh, something that struck me was you were writing about um, people who tried to sabotage you <laughs> uh, when you're not drinking. And uh, yes. I remember... Yeah, I had had some kind of surgery and I had some medication and it was very specific that um it did not mix with alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. And so we went to a, a it was an Easter event, I think, um a brunch and mm-hmm. um I I asked for a a a, a virgin mary you know, mm-hmm. no alcohol. And I, I got it, and I said, "Peter, you know, it, it actually tastes like it has alcohol in it," but they said not. And it turns out that it actually did have. Hmm. They said it was premixed, and so they had no control over it. But but, but hmm. there were, there was they were kind of thoughtless of them, wasn't it? But I, well, I, I yeah. Could, I mean, you know,
1: I mean, I can, I can I can tell you this though, young lady Hillary, when 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 I discovered that. The local a, lo, a local distiller called Boyd and Blair would actually do home delivery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I was relieved because I was thinking otherwise my wife is going to go mad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there, yeah. Well, yeah. That's that's a whole other thing. You know, I mean, how you do it is a whole other thing. How you handle yeah. social situations, a whole other thing. You have a whole section on uh, different friends if you're not drinking and different events and how you you, uh, um, socialize. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I think that it's really helpful to have somebody do a dry challenge with you so that you have the support that you need and that individual and yourself can go ahead and plan activities together that don't, have to do with alcohol. Um, I also think that it's great because you have somebody to vent to if you're having a hard day or a hard time with your dry challenge and vice versa, and you can really stand in as a cheerleader for each other, and, and that's what I had initially with my friend when we made our bet that first year, um, and since then, my boyfriend has been, you know, my sober month support squad, too, and he'll do a dry month with me, and we'll, we have each other to support and hang out with and that sort of thing. I think that you can certainly still hang out with your friends who are having a drink. And the important, I guess, realization is understanding that you still have things in common and that you can still suggest other activities to these friends who are not participating. So instead of going to the bar, maybe you invite, you take the initiative to plan and invite all of your friends for a hike or a dinner or whatever it is that you'll all enjoy. And I certainly think that if you find that your inner circle or any of your acquaintances or that sort of thing, if anybody is questioning what you're doing or giving you a hard time, and it's totally fair for them to ask questions. And I think that that should be encouraging as well because you're really opening up their eyes too to something that they might not be aware of. But if they're pestering you or bullying you about it, I think it's also an opportunity to understand the the dynamic of your relationship there or your friendship. If somebody isn't supporting you in some in anything that you are wanting to pursue, then that's just something to keep in the back of your head too.
1: No, I do I do recall reading somewhere or knowing somebody said that, that during prohibition when when liquor was illegal, people actually drank a whole lot more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Poss- poss- yeah,
2: possibly. Uh, you know. Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, 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 you 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 heard the same thing.
2: I don't know. If, I I was going to say if if that is the case, I can understand that. You know, maybe it was a sign of the times, or I I'm not sure because I'm not necessarily a historian in that regard or at all, but I think that um, a big misconception of Dry January is that people will binge drink either before the challenge begins or when it ends, and I from personal experience have felt that I am less inclined to want to a drink um, at any you know point that next month um, and definitely over time, myself and other people too have drank less and less as the years, you know, goes on so You're,
0: you're, an, an, stand,
2: you're an outstanding image
0: Thank you <laughs> <laughs> Well, I Listen. Mm-hmm. this book is i mean if you're if you're um, even just toying with the idea, this book will give you resolve that's number one i think yeah. we and somebody. also all these tips um, on on how how to actually do it i mean you've charts you have um, suggestions for for uh, things to do instead uh, it's a, if i you know when you think about it it's really a major change for most Adults, and it's particularly funny that it started in in the UK because you you want a a bunch of drinkers, (laughs) right?
2: I think that you know it started in the UK, and, and this woman, Emily Robinson, she really was setting out to do her best at a half marathon. And I really admire her for not just doing that for herself, but ultimately changing kind of the course of history for not just the UK, but the United States and certainly the rest of the world. I think that she was really the, you know, the start to this global phenomenon. And it really just started with one person wanting to better themselves physically and reaching a goal. And... You know, when she did that in 2011, she repeated it in 2012. Um, and, and when she presented it to, at the time, she was working for a charity in the UK that was committed to helping people cut down on their alcohol consumption, they made a whole campaign about it. And I really think that speaks to what one person can do to change so many other lives. Um, so it's really, it's really something. I think it's a really cool story.
1: Well, we're, we're, we're very proud of you. We really are. And we're, Thank we're, we're you. Ra- we'll raise a glass to you at dinner time. I won't I won't, <laughs> to, I won't tell you what will be in it, though.
2: A glass so. of, uh, maybe a cup of tea. A okay, cup of okay, tea. Okay, there you
1: go. All right, well, Anne's probably going to have a cup of tea right now. So, I, I just had a cup of tea, yeah. You just had a cup Green of tea. Green tea. Okay, well.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, again, listeners, you, you really should, look at this book. It may be beyond your current experience and you'll learn a whole lot. Uh, Hilary Scheinbaum, um, you did a, a masterful job on presenting the, the pros, the cons, the hows, the whys, and again listeners this called the dry challenge and, uh, and you should start it in January because that's the perfect time to to start. Hillary, thank you for talking to us. Thank you. I
2: really appreciate this, and I'm so glad that we were able to chat.
0: Yes, and good luck with the...
2: Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
0: Next uh, up, Colin Franklin and his book, The Pie Room, um, which is, well, I mean, it's a real place as well, um, and it's his place called The Pie Room in um, a hotel in London, and the book makes you want to, and talking to him makes you want to hop on a plane cross the pond, and drop down into Heathrow which we immediately. Have,
1: which we have done several times, but we like, to do it, times. we like to do it again. We we not do it. But, but it, yes. if not, you can just buy the book and do the recipes and everything will be fine. Yes,
0: we have savory pies, and Jamie Oliver calls him, um, Callum, the king of London pies, or the London king of pies, I guess it's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we're talking to Callum Franklin, and I I can't stop raving about his cookbook, The Pie Room, and and my big regret is, although we've stayed in the hotel a number of times when it was uh, a Marriott, and the Peters family had a a deep connection to the insurance company that was originally there. uh, When we were there, we didn't have the Pie Room. And we're we're talking to who Jamie Oliver, no less, calls the king, the pie king. Callum is the pie king, he says. And from looking at this book, I believe him. I believe him. (laughs) I want some of this food right away, Callum.
3: (laughs) Oh, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. Thank you.
1: It, it, It sounds, we were talking before we came on there, it sounds like you... You must have cooked for us because you were in the kitchen the last time we stayed at the building, which at that yeah, time, as possible. I say, was a was a was a Renaissance by Marriott. It was subsequently taken over by Rosewood, and uh, which is a very fine hotel chain. And I'm sure, I'm yeah. sure, the, the so staff I, is probably still the for... same. Yeah, well, you know, we name. probably
0: yeah, had him definitely. cook for us at other places too, because he worked at a variety of um, restaurants that we um, frequented, um, including the Ivy and Roast. The, what's his name from Roast?
1: I forgot. I forgot uh, his name.
0: He was the GM no, or the owner. He was he the was. owner. Okay, oh, he used it, to have us back. for lunch all the time.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I really loved working there. It Was amazing working right in the center of a market. Yeah, I liked the borough market.
0: too. Right, we like
1: yeah. we like the fish and chips wrapped in the, wrapped in the Financial
0: Times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I like the oysters too. I mean, I, I loved it. I forget can't that there the name of guy's name. It was a chef who was there
1: for a long for the longest time.
3: There was Lawrence Keogh.
0: La- was Lawrence, That's it. got it? Yeah. yeah.
3: He was there for a long time. Uh, And after that was Marcus for Burn. And actually it was Marcus that brought me in because we'd worked together at the Ivy a long time before together. And he said to me, hey, look, I'm doing the roast cookbook. Um, Would you be able to come in and sort of help run the kitchen whilst I'm doing the book? And then I ended up staying staying quite a bit longer than that afterwards because I loved it, but... um, Yeah, that was the the last big sort of restaurant I did before we opened Holborn Dining Room.
1: Okay.
0: Wonderful. Well, Well, you know, I'm sure you probably have cooked someplace where we've been because we also, we've been to the Ivy, uh, we've been to um, Rose, we've been to some of these others I saw in your resume. very likely, yeah.
3: I mean, you know, I've been in London most of my career, pretty much all of it. Now,
1: where did you, well, where did you start out, Colin?
3: Uh, so, I mean, the first serious restaurant that I worked in was a place called Chapter One, which is just I mean, really, that's I mean, it's more Kent, than it is the London. one that's in Dublin. No, so uh, oh, okay, it's, it's in Farnborough in, uh, oh, in okay. Kent. Okay, no, there so just
1: there, is, the, there is a restaurant called Chapter One in in Dublin, Ireland. It's, it's very uh, which popular.
3: Which is fan- fantastic restaurant, yeah. But yeah, the, uh, the you know it's Yeah, that's probably
0: that's number one always, isn't it? In the um, yeah. In Ireland, yeah. See, that's yeah. the other thing. We used to go to the food on the edge every year, and now that's not going on either.
3: Yeah, There's a lot that's a shame, Well,
0: yeah. now are you closed or open? I just uh, got uh, the the newsletter from Eater London, and it's uh, it's now extended this lockdown to. Maybe possibly the restaurants will be locked down until may
3: yeah that's i mean that's not confirmed yet, but I think it's a possibility because London uh is not getting any better at the moment, if anything we're heading to to a worse situation first before we see any sort of change so yeah,
1: indeed. i I think
3: we're more likely to see more restrictions at the moment rather than easing of restrictions.
0: Well, it's kind of Boris it sounds like that, you know. How are, yeah. are you actually? are you actually open,
3: Callum? So the the hotel is open, but the restaurant is closed. We're not allowed okay. to have the restaurant open. Not um, even the takeout. Uh no, no. So well, for us, it, I mean, we could no. open the takeout, but that area just doesn't lend itself to no. takeout in the middle of a lockdown because there's not a large residential area around there and then we're talking about then transporting quite a distance before you get to any sort of customer base so
1: right, we decided
3: right. against it and uh you know this the first lockdown we did a sort of large charity project and kept the chefs busy but this time round you know it was it was in December was when it was starting off so we we looked at that and thought, well, do you know what? Actually, let's give let's give all of the team Christmas off, right? Uh-huh, got so it's probably it. the first first time in their careers they are all off at Christmas. So, yeah, we we made that decision and kind of stuck to it. Now, you know, I literally was on the phone with with a large group of the chefs uh, before we, we we got on this call and. A few of them are sort of itching for something to do, so we're working on a little project with them now um for the ones that do want to sort of have something. I see well, your
0: team sounds wonderful. I loved your tribute to your team.
3: yeah, they're kind of everything to the restaurant like we yeah i mean you'll see that in the book that that team that's that I specifically mentioned there, the senior team of the kitchen, yes. they've pretty much been there since we opened right
0: i Uh, thought to myself it must be a pretty good kitchen environment for you to be able to retain them that long
3: yeah well you know i think we uh we have a way of sort of treating each other at the restaurant and um we've all worked in you know extremely hard kitchens at different points of our career and you, you can run kitchens differently and have a similar effect, I think. So we decided quite early on that we wanted to have an environment where people enjoyed coming to work and actually <laughs> weren't, weren't yeah, in which, fear of what was going to happen in the day and, you know... What
0: wasn't,
1: yeah. it, wasn't it Tom Aikens who used to like hitting people?
0: Oh, yeah, oh, Tom Aikens. Never, I'd never... he burned burned people. Are we... We had an interview with him, and he kept us waiting for something like yeah. forty minutes really. on purpose. I mean, he could see us there, you know. Really? <laughs> Terrible man. <laughs> 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 yeah, we, we <laughs> no we have. We really know a lot of the chefs in London, and and uh, I was sorry to hear uh, uh, um, Alberto died, but um, yeah. yeah, but. Yeah, but um, the, the, he was just—he he stood out as being probably <laughs> the most unsuited, unsuitable person to lead a kitchen. But anyhow, yeah, we, people we, loved we, him. Who knows?
1: We used to love to yeah. go to a
0: restaurant called Pied à Terre. Pied Terre the, was a great restaurant.
3: It, was, oh, it
1: that's
3: a good cool. restaurant. Tom, you
1: know? a, Tom Aikens Akins was there, yeah. and da- David Moore, the owner, showed him the mm. door after after the burning incident. Showed him the door. Yeah, you're, you're out of here. I mean, well, was, our
0: favorite London restaurant, uh, two of our favorite London restaurants closed. One is the Leadberry, which yeah, we used to love. Yeah, And um and the other actually, the chef, um, who's French, left and went back to his. He had a house in Australia, so I don't know. Last I time, that. pardon.
3: Is it- was it Bruno Lubert? Yes, Bruno yes, Lubert. yes. I love him. Yeah. And, and
0: he has not. rooms, too, but it's such a long trek. We used to live <laughs> yeah. in Australia, but the last time we went was for the world's 50 best a few years ago. And we were in transit yeah. from Pittsburgh to uh, uh, to visit Cousin Richard in Tasmania. Uh, we were mm-hmm. in transit for 32 hours. <laughs> wow. It's too much. It's just too much. Yeah,
3: it's a lot. Bruno's a lovely guy and so well-liked loved it. by everyone in the industry. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 very, yeah, very, very well-respected by everyone. But, you know, I went back to the pied terre recently and uh, I thought it was great. So we had uh, the, the chef was Greek and it was still that really sort of cutting-edge fine dining yeah. with just with touches of, of Greek influence all the way through it. And it was amazing. I thought we had a fantastic meal there. Yeah, I lovely. forecast know, yeah, David's still there, sort of running the show. Sure.
1: Yeah, Colm, I, I, I remember once upon a time forecasting that Pierre de, Terre, Pierre de Terre would be the next UK restaurant to get three stars.
3: Yeah, I mean, do you remember? So it was, who was there? Was he Richard? Shane,
1: oh, Osborne. Shane Osborne was the chef when we went yeah. for the first time. Yeah, and then there was a guy before, called Mar- Marcus, i forget his last name who yeah. who was a, who was at David's second restaurant lot Pierre, yeah. and then
3: and then he
1: went back to Pierre de terre
3: yeah, yeah but the original chef for Pierre de terre was richard neat okay. and he was the i mean he was the guy when i was you know a young chef uh-huh. everybody heard stories about richard neat right I and mean, uh-huh. he was this sort of mad genius uh, you know, he was one of those chefs who's, you know, used you know like Marco used to smoke on the pass, the same thing, and very much in that same mold. And actually, I I lived in a pub in Fitzrovia, but, um, very close. So um, we used to see a lot of the guys from Terre there, and they'd tell me stories about Richard neat And there's an incredible story about uh, Richard having a fight with a waiter. Which ended up with them yeah, they ended up rolling around the floor of the dining room and Richard was Richard was hitting the waiter with a fire extinguisher, but the waiter was a boxer, right? This is where it all went wrong. And what was amazing was that at this time, Elton John was sat there in the restaurant.
0: Kind of so
3: yeah, there's lots of very cool stories from that
0: time. Um, oh boy! But yeah, well, let, let,
3: I, let's go back. Let's go back to pastry because that was
1: supposed to be the, the subject of the conversation.
0: Yeah. yeah. How about you? In your introduction, you talk about how you got to, to open the pie room. Why don't you give us that uh, story? How, what yeah, so, what brought it about?
3: So, um I mean like I you know, I like I said earlier, I've I've worked in London almost all of my career and, and the London food history means a lot to me and you know, when we opened the restaurant we were really trying to push more slowly towards uh like really classical British cooking and I, I wanted to work out first of all if that was right for our guests, like if there was you know, their demand for it. Because I started at the restaurant, I think it was three weeks after it opened. So um, there was already a menu in place. You know, there was already a sort of idea of the food. But what I wanted to do was really go back to sort of old school British cooking. So um, we started off, we put, you know, pie on the menu. And then we put beef wellington on the menu. That was very popular. Um, And then the more... I, I was sort of open in my mind to the possibility of pushing it further, um, the more that was successful. And then there was one day where, I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier about this, um, about the fact that the building we're in has real history, right? So oh, yeah. It's over it's over 100 years old. Uh, it used to be originally the headquarters for Pearl Assurance, this British insurance company, which right. you guys have a connection to as well, yeah. So um because it's that it's got that age and depth and history to it, uh, quite often we'd find things in the hotel, which you know, were very old and um in the basement of the hotel there is a huge store, which is uh well I always describe it if I told one of my chefs to go down and grab something from it, we'd say, Go down to Aladdin's cave and grab this or grab that <laughs> because We'd always be finding things down there that were amazing. So we'd find, I mean, honestly, it's that big. We would find things like silver service carving trolleys that were, oh, wow! You
0: know,
3: I mean, sort of realize vintage trolleys, which are yeah. worth thousands. And we'd have them recommissioned. And, you know, we had the silversmiths, uh, you know, most of the silversmiths worked very close to us. So we would take it there. They would sort of recondition it for us and we'd put it into use. And then one day I was down there and I found this antique pie mold. And I knew it was a pie mold kind of just by looking at it. But at the same time, I didn't know how to use it personally. I didn't know the technique of using it. So I thought that's kind of interesting. I should I'll take it upstairs and see if anyone upstairs knows uh, how to use this. And the first person. You I said you to had me,
0: to assemble it or something.
3: Yeah, so it's kind of made of different parts and has interlocking keys. Uh, really, it's like a, recta- a rectangular pie mold. Yeah, and um, the first person I took it to was my senior sous chef, David. Uh, David was, you know, David uh, retired this year. He's been in the industry for ages. Opened some of the biggest restaurants in London, and super experienced. And he looked at me and he said, "I haven't got a clue." and I (laughs) was like oh wow Baze doesn't know how to use it so uh, let's see how you know if someone else in the team does and not a single member of my team which was at the time around sort of 36 chefs nobody knew how to use it so it identified the problem for me that you know a really old classical technique was not understood by a single member of my team and you know will that technique, if this continues, that sort of thing, will that just get lost in history? So I set about that day from there to try to, you know, work out how to use it and how to master that, and then immediately was to train my chefs how to use it. And that sort of opened a door for us as a a team as a whole in terms of looking back at traditional technique and and trying to remaster it and re understand it and and pass it back down onto the younger generation of chefs and get people excited about it again as well.
0: And no, that's I kind mean, of where, how yeah, did you um, know that it was a palm oil? I have an old copper thing um, mm. that that's uh, from what I hear from just family talk was mm. passed down. Um, uh, it was from Greece. And it has right. the it has a um, hammered um, uh, on the bottom of this thing. It has a fish. Now, would that be right. for a fish pie?
3: Yeah, it's I mean, round.
0: It it's I not mean, shaped like a fish.
3: Yeah, it could be. I mean, it, it's really interesting. You can Sometimes you have to when you're trying to identify where what these things are. Is you have to look at what was, uh, you know, the the sort of food a la mode at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So, quite often, if it's, you know, something you can tell it's from 1890, you can look back at books then and quite often pick up on what it is. Um, because there were things that we've identified as pie molds that have turned out to not be pie molds at all, once we've done a bit of research into it. Uh-huh. But we've, Regardless, we we've, we've used them anyway and created yes. some really cool things, but... That, I mean, I mean, to me at first, it looked a little bit like a bread tin, but the more I looked at it, the more I understood it couldn't be for bread because of the the sort of interlocking parts it wouldn't make sense to to have for a bread tin um but yeah, I mean, it turned out to be a, a sort of classical pie mold um and then really, what happened after that was it kind of lit a fire in the kitchen, so we were very excited about the, the the sort of possibility of doing you know or going deeper into the history of pie making in our restaurant, and, and what's
0: more English than pies i mean
3: yeah right you know. and uh and and it suits my sort of uh my 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 mentality, how I work, I'm kind of fairly meticulous of things and i I love history uh I love taking time to do things properly, so pie making yeah i mean suits
0: it's me. it's a little um, i mean some of the the, the the product you produce. I mean, but what was it? I, mean, I was so relieved when you got to Philo to say you, you approved of just buying it because I couldn't imagine ever yeah. trying to make it.
3: <laughs> yeah, so we... Um, but then now, do you sketch
0: everything out? I see all these sketches.
3: Yeah, So I, re- I mean, it's a big thing for me is... Uh, I love design. I, I love architecture and design, and um, I, I enjoy... Uh, kind of putting something down on paper first and setting myself a target so quite often as I draw things because I have this slightly obsessive nature I'll, I'll draw things that are fairly complex and then say to the team that's it, that's the target and quite often it'll be met with sort of that's not possible, chef. We, you know, we're not going to do that. And it, we always work out a way of doing it, um, which again quite often opens new techniques up for us. Uh, and we always learn something new in each of those processes. But I love to have those drawings as well afterwards because we can look back at things we've done. Uh, you know, I love and, where and you talk about.
0: I love when you talk about the crimping of the of the, the edges of the pies. That, yeah. that it's almost like a fingerprint or a, a signature. You can look at that and tell which of your team actually did it. I love yeah. that.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that I I do like to sort of encourage um, people to be expressive when we're working with with what they do and show their personality and what we do, as long as it stays at a standard, right? If it's at a standard that I'm right. happy with, I don't mind if it, you know, they, they crimp something slightly different to the way I do it. Um, and it and it is exactly what you said. It means that I can look at it and say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Laszlo made that one, or Mark made that one, or Knox made that one. And uh, and we, only we know that, right? I mean, the guest doesn't generally know that, but it's nice. It's, uh, it's a nice thing we have. But, I mean, building... You know, but
0: I don't know what, what how you describe your your um, uh, organization of or the book, but I mean it's totally fascinating this section of tools and techniques. I mean you you know this stuff inside out and backwards.
3: Yeah. So what we I don't know when we when we first discussed the book when I sat with the publisher the first time we talked about it I said the the my main goal for the book and this has to be above everything all the time we have to look at this is we we want to take out the fear of pastry work that people have, right? The people who uh you know have tried to make something savoury pastry at home, it's pastry's gone wrong, it's you know, split or it's got too hot when they were working with it. And you're you're talking to
0: somebody would, like that.
3: <laughs> yeah, but pe- people will often, they'll, they'll have that one experience, and then they'll just decide, well, I'm never doing that again. That's right? me. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've said that with the book, we, we need to sort of put in as much information that we can, that we've learned over the years, that helps take away that fear for people. And it can be, you know, things that were extremely complicated for us at the start, that Every time we every time we did a certain thing, we found a slightly easier way of doing it and then you know two months later we found another easier way of doing it and then we get to this point where we can now translate that into a book and and we always you know we've always been very keen on sharing information as a team anyway as a kitchen mm-hmm. and that's been a big thing for us, and a lot of chefs are very Protective of recipes and protective of techniques oh, yeah. but the way we've always looked at it is um, everything that we learn we're happy to pass on to people because um, the worst that could the worst thing that could happen would be if you know if we trained a chef from another restaurant how to do a specific type of technique, the worst thing that can happen is that they go back to their restaurant and they do it better than us, right. That's the mm-hmm. very worst, and then all that means is that we then have to be better. So that's not a bad thing, and it keeps no. us on our toes. Um, so we've because of always having that sort of attitude stuff, um, the book just felt like a natural progression of that. Sort of let's let's just put it on paper, then you know.
0: And rolling pastry. I mean, that's the part I always hated, and then. The next thing is getting it into the uh, the pie um, mold or whatever, and you
1: yeah. you handle
0: that it's straightforward. Um, you have tips on uh, chilling and and so forth, which I mean, it, you lay it out like it's still doable. I'm not sure yeah. about it, but <laughs> no, I mean,
3: okay. So I'll give you a, I'll give you an example in the in the cookbook of, of something that. Um, manifested itself from us having a problem at work, right? So but there was one type of design we used to do at work that went on top of a pie, uh, which was a very intricate lattice that we didn't use a lattice roller cutter for because it, we wanted it far smaller and more detailed. So we used to stand in a walk-in fridge, right, and do that by hand because it was the only way we could work out keep the pastry cold enough wow. to get that much detail into it and over time um we got fairly bored of <laughs> kind of doing yeah. it St- stood in a fridge for a long period of time um and then we worked out well look if we put our chopping boards in the freezer we can kind of get the same effect so because the chopping boards are so cold when we take them out of the freezer that trans that cold transferred to the pastry whilst we worked on it. And then very quickly we didn't need to be in the fridge anymore when we did that style of work. So uh, that's
0: how you got yeah. this I mean I read where you recommend yeah. putting putting the the um, board in the freezer. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's where that sort of thing came
3: from. It was just from trial and error and and, and lots of hours stood <laughs> in the fridge. Sweetheart. Who, yes.
1: Who who was it who told us you had to be careful not to sprinkle too much flour on the surface when you. I don't want, know, but my mother around, used
3: to always say that too.
1: And there was somebody who yeah. somebody told us that, and and uh, Colin emphasizes that.
3: Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, I agree with that because it changes. Firstly, it changes the recipe, right? Because. Right. You roll you roll that flour into your dough, so you're changing the ratio of
0: flour Yeah, I always
3: wondered about that. that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there was somebody who told also, us that. I mean,
3: yeah, it, it, you know, it will it will make potentially the the dough more brittle, which makes it difficult then to line the the tin case with. But yeah, then you have to understand how to control the temperature of the dough to avoid needing to put that flour down in the first place, right? right so right. that's why we talk about those techniques in the book to get around. Well, you that. know
0: about fat, I was kind of surprised that your preferred fat is. Salted butter. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first time well, I was meeting Peter's mother, I'm yeah. not meeting her, but visiting her in in, um, in Yorkshire. Um, she, there was a pie I made that she wanted me to reproduce, but I had never worked with lard before. Yeah, and I didn't know it's what a- to do with it.
3: I think I mean it's a pretty British thing, right? I, I, it's it gives you a very different texture of pastry which is mm-hmm. delicious. And uh and it also ties in with, you know, really working with traditional technique because as far back as, you know, sort of six hundred years you can see lard being used in, in pastry. Um <laughs> but I I do enjoy um the sort of mouthfeel that you get from a, a butter-based pastry, okay. probably slightly more than lard.
0: Um, but you also, but, most pastry chefs say you should use unsalted butter. You go for full salt.
3: Yeah, do you know why, right? Because I don't no. know why, I don't understand why people say use unsalted butter. I never get it because you you, you generally, put, like most recipes, you're going to add some form of salt at some point, right? now i guess saying in a recipe use unsalted butter is just so that you don't have to adjust that amount but in my fridge at home i don't want to have unsalted butter left over i want salted butter because i want to use it on my bread and you know use it in uh, you know spread on things i just i never (laughs) understood the point of that why would you buy unsalted butter without reason so i mean it's so minimal. The amount difference that it makes. So I was like, no, let's just change all of the recipes to have salted butter in, and then you never uh, need to have two types of butter in your fridge, right? Right. Uh,
1: have you, have, you, tried go- have you tried goat butter?
3: I love it. Yeah.
1: I, would, love yeah I
0: just We have so many. You know, I just the... had a tweet rabbit from um, uh, who's our friend that started the World's 50 Best Restaurants. What's his name? Anyhow. Um, uh, he put out a tweet saying, "Who who likes goat butter?" Mm. And and I, I said, I, "I love it, absolutely love it, and keep yeah. it in the part of my larder, keep it in the freezer." You know? Yeah, so, it, has,
3: it has like a little bit of acidity to it, doesn't it? Which is lovely. Yeah, but you know, one yeah. of the
0: things you point out, I think we to make a point because. And we've done a lot of interviews with pie people. You have um, uh, uh, you really focus a lot on the traditional, um, the um, what am I trying to say, the, the um, savory pastry yeah. as opposed to the sweet pastry, which yeah. a lot of people, a lot of um, Americans, for example, would not think of. You know, as as it's very British, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah, the it pork pies and the, I mean,
3: and the pasties. I, think, and, yeah, I mean, we you can see savory pastry in lots of different food cultures. I mean, it's there in Mexican food culture and, you know, uh, it's kind of all over the world. Pies, savory pies specifically, it's kind of yes. limited to a few. A few. So it's like United Kingdom, uh, Australia, New Zealand, right? That's in terms of having a real foothold in a food culture, they're really the only places where you see that. But, um. I always I I I laugh
1: about. I always laugh about. a big success there in the,
3: in the US. And I always I would laugh,
1: Colm, about, about the, the, the Australian favorite, which is a meat pie kind of yeah. unspecified. <laughs> well, yeah. you know,
0: you have all these different. Uh, pastries and dough the doughs of the different um pies um and yeah. and I mean a lot of people will be surprised at the variety here and I'll tell you I've been in this business for a long time and you know I and I studied French for years but I never really realized that the shoe pastry actually had to do with sheep yeah. <laughs> yeah. it never I, occurred to me
3: yeah, I tried to put in a little bit of sort of history throughout the book and a bit of explanation because it's really nice to know, like, little facts like that, right? But um, I thought that would be interesting in the book. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's at least, I think, six or seven savoury pastries in there, uh, pastry doughs. Um oh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, so, well, th- look, I mean, what you said about, you know, in the States... Um, it's mostly sweet pies people look for right and and don't really have an understanding as much of, of savory pies but that was one of the most you know one of the loveliest surprises uh, on public uh, publishing the cookbook was that it was a hit in America like we we sold lots of books there and, and i think it's because there is it's an unknown Right? so people are interested in it it's it's a oh. part of food culture that people weren't they didn't really understand and and for that same reason and you know the last four years we've traveled the world because of the pyram because restaurants have asked us to come out and and cook at their restaurant um because it's a different food culture to them that they have they don't have the understanding of and and there's an intrigue with that um we've been very lucky with that
1: where where have you been in that regard
3: i mean i th- the, the very first big international trip that we did i think was was las vegas and it was just bizarre that we oh, were flying. Yeah. <laughs> we were flying <laughs> it would be to London where we no, it's you know, unreal we, we, isn't it yeah with this tiny little you know the pie room and, and the restaurant just just getting on with our sort of stuff and what we enjoy doing. And we got contacted by this restaurant in Las Vegas who said, hey, look, we want to fly you over to do a night. Um, just 20, 20 guests, but we want to do like a sort of Bacchanalian feast of, of old traditional technique.
0: Oh, and nice. I was like,
3: yep, let's, <laughs> let's do it. That sounds it like fun weird. for you. Yeah, it was so much fun. And it was incredible. And we were so well looked after. And and, uh, yeah, and I've sort of had nice memories of that trip for a long time. But since then, I mean, yeah, we've we kind of lots of trips around Europe, uh, you know, cultures like, uh, we, we worked at a restaurant in, um, Sweden, which is a two Michelin star called, uh, Gastrologic. And, um, they, they don't have pies, right, in Sweden at all. So the chef was really interested to bring us over and sort of have a, you know, and and, and show their team those techniques and these new oh, teams yeah. to sort of open their eyes up. And um, just, I mean, the last trip we did before lockdown um, was Montreal, and we were there.
0: Oh, that's fun. It was,
3: yeah, it was literally, you know, a couple of weeks before things started closing down. When And I remember being in a hotel room um, in Montreal, and on the news they were saying, Okay, we've got our first case in Toronto, and I was like, "Oh God!" Like it's in Canada now. You know, this thing's getting real. Um, <laughs> but that that food trip to Montreal was mind blowing. Like the food culture they have there in that city is well, so they much like it, fun. Yeah, that, yeah. there's a restaurant there
1: called the restaurant they called Joe Beef.
3: Yeah, we went. It was so you good. went to Joe Beef? <laughs> yeah, you know, I I, I was. Very fortunate. I got a message when we when we touched down in Montreal, and uh, I turned my phone on in the airport, and the first message was from David, one of the owners
0: oh, of really? Joe
3: Beef, and and he was like, "Hey, look, I know you're in Montreal. Uh, if there's anything you need when you're in the city, let us know, and we'll help." Oh, nice. And uh, yeah, and we got we've got very well looked after there, and and really sort of that whole that whole food community in that city um was very kind to us um and we were just there to make pies it was lovely you know and that was but that was the last trip we did before lockdown and i'm glad it was that one do it was so much fun
1: Sweet, this yes this, do you think that uh Colm would get along with our friend from pie camp
0: who it's
1: the lady who runs pie camp
0: oh um yeah um Right. do you know about the pie camp? What's pie camp? <laughs> <laughs> but th- those aren't savouries. They're, I think she does, well she did do so- something in London, I remember that. Yeah, do um, do, right. do g- g- Google it and if, you, and if you want
1: to make sure you get in contact, let us know because she's, a, she's okay. a good friend and, and she does exactly that. It's like Her a, name
0: is... Her name is Kate Kate McDermott. Oh, there you go. Okay, you can remember. Uh, yeah, and she she had a, a general a pie book first, and then um she she was she has been running this pie camp. I mean, it's exactly what you would expect. I mean, people go for like a, a, a camp where they spend all their time making pies and learning about pies. Oh, and it. she's now. Oh, isn't yeah. that wonderful? And she, her, her house is outside of Seattle. It's north, isn't it, brother? It's in
1: Port, Port Angeles, Washington. Yeah. And, and the only reason the only reason I remember is because that's that that's the place where the the guy who tried to bomb LAX entered oh, the right. United States from Canada.
0: Right. Well, well um, the uh, yeah, yeah but she was, uh, she. Did in her first book she talks about pork pies and stuff because she did some course in London, but the latest yeah. one is all um, uh, uh, sweet pies. But she since this uh, whole uh, coronavirus, the COVID lockup, um, she started doing online pie camp, and she's reaching all kinds of places like you were talking about all over the world now instead of people who yeah. could just go to Seattle. So well, some of these things we're not talking about is... Uh, that we have so much to, t- to actually to talk about. I wanted to ask you about the full, en- full English pie, which had me laughing hysterically, um, <laughs> with, with the wonderful running egg yolk in the center. And then that celebration chicken.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the celebration chicken was... Uh... I mean, I guess yeah, you have chicken pot pie in the States, right? That's probably, yeah. like, the closest thing you would get to, like, a sort of savoury pie, as you'd know, it, in the UK. And actually, I mean, that's something that you see a lot in the UK as well and, and lots of pubs and stuff. But um, that was the, the the filling that's in that celebration chicken pie was the first pie that we had on the menu at Holborn. So, and it's never come off, right? It was, <laughs> We've slightly tipped yep. it over the years, changed the recipe very slightly, but it's our most popular selling pie as an individual pie. Um, but I wanted to sort of show it in its full glory as a kind of very cool style of pie. So we used, for that book, we used something called a corset mold, which, you know, uh, is that sort of um, fluted oval pie tin Um which you can get online, but we kind of created a problem when we published the book, because
0: it's hard to get. for the
3: moment, you can't buy them anywhere, because everybody was buying them when we released the book. And, oh, and I before. see. <laughs>
0: yeah,
3: so there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a huge demand for them before that came yeah, out. I, I, know,
0: I didn't know why you wanted, you needed an oval one, but...
3: Yeah, but I mean, for me, it's my favorite uh, pie tin, uh, ever. I think it's beautiful. And it really uh-huh. gives you that sort of. Um, it's a
0: gorgeous looking thing. I mean, it's yeah, wonderful. It, it looks like architecture, right? It's that
3: oh, you know, right. almost like a pillar or something, like a, you know, a marble pillar. Um, but I love it, and uh, yeah, I, I really wanted to get that. But in the book, and then the full English pie was, you know, I, I wanted the book to be fun, still, and fun to cook from, and I wanted recipes in there. Uh, which people would sort of open the book, look at, and think, "Okay, I can do that," right? <laughs> because we didn't want it to be intimidating. So that, and I think probably the the macaroni cheese pie as well. Oh,
0: that was Again. funny too. I laughed at that one too.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, they're a bit naughty. They're sort of, you know, I mean, macaroni cheese in a pie is like carb on carb, <laughs> but the full English pie. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know many English people that don't like a full English, but I just it was fun to sort of put all of this right. stuff into a pie, but still to have some real, you know, proper technique in there. So you have that runny egg yolk in the middle.
0: Oh, um, right. And actually... I, yeah, I don't was, know how you did that. I mean, I really have no idea.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's just about, you know, that, again, that was something that we learned as a team um, through trial and error, picking up, the you know, the how to get things like that correct, and then just translated that into home cooking. But... um yeah i i don't know somebody tagged me in left in a, in a picture of a full english pie the other day on social media and uh uh-huh. was, you know it was a complete amateur home cook and they'd absolutely nailed it and um <laughs> and it, it just made me really happy you know and, and and that's a big thing for me is seeing how many people are cooking from the book has been like a revelation to me i was really uh, I mean, I, 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 I said
0: to Peter that this is definitely a, a, yeah, a keeper. You know, I'm, this is staying in my library. This book. Oh, well, thank um, you. Uh, so yeah, i nice. uh, I'll never get anything that looks like <laughs> beautiful things you create.
2: Uh, yeah, and listeners,
0: about. I mean, we're telling you there are things you never even thought you'd, you'd want to try that you'll find in this book. And if, you, if you're if you trying to get the ultimate beef wellington, there's a recipe in here, which I'm going to be forced to try because Peter loves beef wellington. And I've never been able to get it. My crust always gets soggy at the bottom when it meets the yeah. mushroom. I mean, it's, <laughs> well, but uh, it's have, a wonderful we, book.
2: Absolutely
0: wonderful and thank so full of personality. And now that I'm talking to you, I see why, Callum. Oh, thank
3: uh, you. That's so kind.
0: Yeah, the, again, listeners, it's Callum Franklin called The Pie Room. And uh, you, you you just you won't get over all these wonderful, especially the savory pies. There's some su- um, sweet ones in, but the, the savory ones are typical traditional English taken to another whole new level. Um, and I love the book and love talking to you, Callum. Thank by, you. It's by the, right the way, just,
1: just, as a, just as a last thing, listeners, the Rosewood, where this restaurant is, is one of the most elegant hotels in London and uh, you should stay there so you have more time to eat more pie.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah, please, please do come by and see me when everything reopens. That would be
0: lovely. Oh, I just you know I can't wait to get back. This is we, we've been skyping with our family. Um, our English Peter's are all in, in England yeah. or else Australia. They um, and uh, they, we just haven't seen them for so long, and mm-hmm. and I just can't wait to be able to go again. So yeah. Well, anyhow, good meeting you. And um, I I don't know what you're doing in the meantime, but um, probably calculating a brand new type
1: just about does it for today, Rabino it does just about to do it for today yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, promise, to I, promise, in, I promise I'll get the track right next week yeah.
0: next time, next week
1: who, who knows what will? who knows where the guys will be
0: so we said bye bye
1: and until then, yeah that's it bye bye